This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Last Friday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court rejected Governor Tony Evers' motion to provide supporting evidence for his 10-year legislative maps. The court did not explain their denial of the maps, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The motion follows the U.S. Supreme Court's rejection of Evers' maps, which would create a 7th black-majority assembly district in Milwaukee. Evers argues that this new district is required under the Voting Rights Act. The state Supreme Court may reconsider Evers' maps and will now most likely make a decision between the governor's maps and the maps of the Republican-controlled state legislature. Invoices found through an open records request show that the state assembly has spent more than $160,000 to fight lawsuits filed against Justice Michael Gableman's investigation of the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, a Dane County Circuit judge has found Voss and the Assembly in contempt of court after not providing records to liberal group American Oversight. Voss and the Assembly were given 14 days to release the requested records or face a $1,000 daily fine, reports the Associated Press. The invoices have led to a lawsuit from the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The commission is seeking to reject Gableman's subpoenas for commission officials to answer questions in private. Voss has extended Gableman's contract through the end of April. Governor Tony Evers has vetoed the riot bill on the grounds that it duplicates existing laws and potentially infringes on First Amendment rights to peacefully protest. Senate Bill 296 gets its nickname by creating a definition of riot. The bill also allowed criminal charges against protesters who are participating during the breakout of a riot. Critics of the bill say they're concerned the bill would criminalize nonviolent protest. Evers has said that the bill creates ambiguity, inconsistency, and contradictions with the First Amendment, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Last Thursday, Evers vetoed seven bills, including the riot bill, and signed six education-related bills. Officials have identified the victim of last week's shooting outside the Dane County Jail. The Dane County Medical Examiner confirms that the man killed is Dwayne L. Collins Jr. of Fitchburg. Collins was shot and killed outside the Dane County Jail in downtown Madison last week and was the city's first homicide of 2022. He was pronounced dead at a local hospital last Wednesday. Preliminary results from a forensic autopsy confirm that Mr. Collins died from homicidal firearm-related trauma. The incident remains under investigation by the Madison Police Department and the Dane County Medical Examiner's Office. Two men were arrested last week in connection with the alleged homicide. Lake Mendota Drive residents continue to disagree with the city's plans to reconstruct their road, feeling unheard and dismissed by their local representative, Alder Keith Furman. City plans include repaving and narrowing the road, replacing underground pipes and sewer systems, and adding sidewalks. 200 residents have signed a petition to delay the project in hopes that more people will learn of the construction. Residents' frustration partly results from Furman seeking the approval of yard signs, advertising the petition for the city to slow its construction plans. 
The Capital Times reports that the city's engineering department estimates that an 8- to 12-week delay may push the project out of the 2022 construction window. A council meeting on April 19th marks the next steps for the Lake Mendota Drive project. An alder discussion and public debate are scheduled for this meeting. Tomorrow, April 5th, is the spring election in Madison. Here is what you need to know. 1. Some polling places have changed due to redistricting. Visit the City of Madison's website to confirm your polling location. 2. Election officials are verifying your identity through your photo ID, not the address on your ID. 3. Registration is available at the polls. You will need proof of residence in paper or online format. 4. Absentee ballots must be returned by Election Day to be counted. If you have not mailed your ballot, you may bring your sealed ballot to your polling location. Voters may only return their own absentee ballots. 5. Sample ballots are available to view before voting. To prepare, check out the My Vote Wisconsin website to view a ballot for your address. And as you're making a plan to vote, of course, check out WORT's coverage of the candidates at wartfm.org. Polls open tomorrow at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. And now, on to today's top stories. Last week, a second flock of chickens were reported to have contracted the avian flu here in Wisconsin, a virus that quickly spreads and is fatal to any birds that catch it. But residents near the first flock that contracted the virus say that they are concerned with how the flock is being disposed of, and that both wild birds and backyard chicken flocks could now be exposed. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Earlier this year, the highly infectious avian flu virus was found at Cold Spring Egg Farm in Palmyra, Wisconsin, about an hour east of Madison. Over two and a half million chickens had to be killed on the farm to prevent spread of the virus, where they are now being moved across town to be composted in order to contain the virus. But Palmyra residents are concerned, saying that the government agencies involved with the containment have not provided answers to questions about the safety of both domestic and wild birds in the area. Winona Bratset is the supervisor for the town of Palmyra. She says that she has received little information from state or federal authorities about containment measures. And on top of that, she says that what little information she has received has been misleading. One of the most alarming things for a lot of our residents is that in the very beginning, we were told that the chicken carcasses would be hauled in sealed trucks, and instead they're in dump trucks with tarps over the top, and we have seen instances where the tarps aren't very tight, and there is material actually flying out of the truck going down the road feathers. So naturally, residents are very alarmed. On the federal level, the responsible agency is the U.S. Department of Agriculture. On the state level, that's the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protections, or DATCAP. Dr. Adele Talat is a professor of microbiology at UW-Madison. He says that the virus can live on any part of an infected chicken, including on feathers. He says that from there, the virus can transmit to both other birds and people. He also says, though, that transmission of the avian flu to people is extremely rare in the U.S., Talat says that catching the disease before it infects a bird can be extremely tricky. Avian flu is one of the bad diseases that affect birds, uh, mainly 
kills him right away. And uh, like in the vet school in the old days, they told us if you got a disease where it's like air going through a poultry house and all, as the air goes, birds die. When the airborne virus finds its way into a flock of birds, like at Cold Spring Egg Farm, the only way to contain the avian flu is to kill all potentially infected birds and dispose of them safely, such as in a compost pile. Once in the compost pile, the temperature of the birds rise until it is too warm for the virus to survive. In previous outbreaks, like in 2015, farmers were then able to safely use that compost as fertilizer. In Palmyra, the compost site sits about five miles away with the dead birds being transported by loads and loads of trucks driving on aging country roads. Marianne Schultz lives just two properties away from the compost site. She says that she was not properly warned by state officials of both the volume of birds and the way that they are being transported. You know, as they're traveling down the road, the tarps are flapping and the birds mixed in with the composting or the carbon. You can see sometimes feathers and you can see birds parts or whatever. Um, I think that they're potentially exposing more birds to the bird flu which is disheartening because it's coming past everyone's properties, everyone around here, or a lot of people have chickens, myself included, and that's concerning. Another issue that neighbors of the compost site have is the smell. Schultz was told by DATCAP officials that there would be little to no smell coming off of the compost pile. But she says that on days when the wind blows from the direction of the site, the smell is so overpowering that she cannot work outside. DATCAP told WORT that usually a compost site would be placed on the property that the outbreak occurred. But because the farm sits on a high water table, however, a compost pile of that size would have affected the groundwater in the area. Instead, a site nearby that was owned by the farm was chosen to protect the groundwater. DATCAP says that they are constantly monitoring the compost project for any leakages or other disruptions that may endanger local residents and wildlife. Supervisor Bratsett says that she knows that something has to be done with the birds, but she is concerned that the birds are not being handled with enough care to ensure that other birds in the area do not also get infected. It's probably the most environmentally friendly way to do it if it's done properly. I have concerns about how they're doing it and where these birds are being dumped into a pile which is then raked out by guys who, thank heavens, are wearing hazmat suits. But nonetheless, they're being raked around and this stuff can just go right into the air and they tell us that it's airborne, can be airborne. It it just seems to me that this is not what we expected before they started composting them, hauling them, when we thought they were going to be composted. And this is not the, the process that we expected to see out there. DATCAP maintains that they have been in daily communication with neighbors and county and town officials. They say that around 14 trucks are currently hauling the birds from the farm to the compost site and could not give a timeline of when the project is expected to be completed. They tell WORT that anyone who is concerned that their bird may have contracted avian flu can contact them on the avian influenza page at datcp.wi.gov. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. While ethanol may be seen as a more eco-friendly form of energy for our cars over traditional gasoline, new scientific research suggests that the risks of the corn-made gas may outweigh the benefits. Our newest reporter, Mackenzie Shanahan, has more. Corn ethanol is fuel produced from corn biomass. It is a heavyweight among biofuels, reinforced by production quotas that have been in place since 2007. 
At the time those quotas were implemented, policymakers saw them as a solution to curbing fossil fuel emissions. In 2020, one-third of corn produced in the United States went to ethanol production. That is over 5 billion bushels. For the past 15 years, researchers at UW-Madison have been studying the environmental impacts of ethanol standards. A recently published analysis of that research finds that the cost of growing corn for ethanol strongly outweigh the benefits of this biofuel. The main issue found? The soaring costs of the farming practices used to grow so much corn. 38 million acres of land currently go toward growing corn for ethanol. More corn means more nitrogen-laden fertilizers, which run off into nearby waters. These fertilizers cause more algae blooms, acidifying the water and disrupting the ecosystem underneath the surface. But federal lawmakers are looking to drop the production quota through a bill called the Corn Ethanol Mandate Elimination Act. The bill was introduced last summer, and it has bipartisan sponsorship. It is authored by two Democrats, Diane Feinstein of California and Bob Menendez of New Jersey, and two Republicans, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania and Susan Collins of Maine. The bill would eliminate volume requirements for corn ethanol production, but it would keep in place requirements for the more environmentally friendly biofuels. This proposed bill echoes the call by the lead researcher of the UW-Madison study for an accelerated shift towards these alternatives. The bill has not passed the Senate yet and is sitting in committee. The senators say there are a slate of reasons to eliminate the ethanol quota. More cost-effective environmental alternatives, the damage to car engines, damage to refineries, deforestation, and habitat destruction, to name a few. Amid growing calls for action on climate change by scientists and concerned citizens alike, this bill could be a potential turning point in the biofuel industry. The EPA is set to create new biofuel standards later this year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Mackenzie Shanahan. It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As Wisconsin gets ready for tomorrow's spring election, school boards across the state are dealing with abuse and death threats over allegations of cultural Marxism and critical race theory. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout sat down with a journalist from the independent news organization ProPublica, who dove into the increasingly partisan school board races across Wisconsin. With Wisconsin's spring elections happening tomorrow, residents of Wisconsin will be heading to the polls to vote for traditionally nonpartisan school board candidates to represent their local school districts. But a push by conservative candidates and media outlets have forced the narrative of transgender issues, cultural Marxism, and parental rights to the forefront of these races. To take a look at this turn in small-town Wisconsin politics, I'm joined by Megan O'Matz, journalist with ProPublica, whose recent article looked at school board races in Wisconsin. Megan, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. So to start things off, your article took a look at the increasing 
polarization of and partisanship of local school board races here in Wisconsin. Tell me a little bit about what you found, what's happening in our state's school board elections. Yes, well, we saw that these races are becoming um, considerably more uh, divisive and bitter, if you would say. We were very um, surprised to see things that you would more likely expect on a national level, these dirty tricks and negative attacks, personal attacks on people who are basically neighbors of each other, right? I mean, these are small towns that normally would work together to make their school boards run. I mean, certainly in the past, you've had divisions along the lines of how high our taxes should be or um, maybe something about teacher raises or benefits. But these kinds of things that we're seeing now uh, seem to be um, very personal and really getting into issues where people are seem very distrustful of each other. And so a lot of these partisan issues that are being brought forward in these races are very much regular talking points in conservative circles, such as Turning Point USA, a right-wing media organization that you mentioned in your article. Why are these issues being brought into school board races, especially in places like rural Wisconsin, where, as someone who went to a public high school in rural Wisconsin, I can tell you is not pushing any sort of Marxist agenda. Yes, this is a uh, something out of the playbook of the Republicans' From the national uh, standpoint, particularly the wing of the party that still supports former President Donald Trump, they have become to see these local races as a way to energize the base, draw people to the polls. So um, this is a plan on the national level, some have called a precinct strategy, in which they're encouraging residents to take back the school boards, take back our county boards and take back our city councils. But, you know, you're really taking them back from your neighbors and many people that are like-minded from you to begin with. Um, so that that's uh, this is a national strategy. We heard it, um, a call put out by former Trump advisor Steve Bannon speaking on his War Room podcast uh, last May, where he basically said the path to save the nation is simple. It's going through the school boards. And um, so he's called on folks to run for these offices. And so, of course, we have our election tomorrow. So I have to ask, what is the community's reaction to this loud push for conservative candidates been on local school boards? Are people buying into some of these ideas? Well, certainly these are very, in some places, they are very vigorously contested elections now. And you've had, you even had uh, primaries in places where you hadn't had them. And some places in Wisconsin, it was even hard to find people to run for school board. And I'm not saying, I mean, I think obviously we want people to participate in democracy. We want um, competition in our elections and all. But on the local level, when you talk about school board races, you all have to, it, it, you know, sending the school buses out to get kids isn't really a Democrat or Republican issue, right? There's so much that school boards deal with. It is the business of running a district. And some of these cultural issues that folks are bringing up, when they really get into these offices, I think they'll find that so much of what's called on them to do is really not partisan. And for so many years, these races you know, and still today, they're really not supposed to be partisan, but we are seeing that the Republican Party and to some extent, the Democratic Party is pouring money into these local school board campaigns. So we'll just have to see what happens on Tuesday, whether the uh, conservative 
slates uh, win and prevail or whether some of the uh, more traditional folks uh, continue to run the school boards. And so now I have to ask, and I realize that this is a pretty deep question, but why is this push happening? What is there to gain by electing these ultra-conservative candidates into school boards? Well, again, I think this is a part of a national strategy by um, a, a part, a wing of the Republican Party that, you know, saw the trouble they had with um, you know, the, with Donald Trump losing the election and, you know, the argument that so far has not been winning, that the election was stolen. So now the tactic is uh, to build from the bottom up. And especially they are also calling for people to run for secretary of state and to um, have more control over running elections. So um, I don't know if they feel like in the in the next elections when maybe there's a candidate who who loses, but they don't like that outcome. If they have their own people in control, then, um, you know, when these elections are disputed, you will have people that may do what the party wants in deciding outcomes. We saw a lot of litigation, of course, over Donald Trump's um, uh, election here, and those kinds of things might well continue. Um, I think they're also thinking of... There, there is a little, there is a little legitimate interest as well in parents wanting to know what their children are being taught in school. I think some of this um, goes a little bit far in wanting to have veto power over all of the curriculum, but certainly there are parents who, um, you know, they want to have more of an idea of what is being taught to their children. And Megan, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? Um, I think another interesting aspect that we saw in looking at this issue is how uh, one of the candidates, the Republican candidates for governor, Rebecca Cleefish, has endorsed um, 115 local candidates, conservative candidates for local offices, including uh, several dozen school board candidates. So that is an unusual and very political thing for someone at the upper levels of the ballot to be endorsing people and funding them. And she even said recruiting and training people for these um, lower level races. Usually folks are just really focused on their own race. Um, so that's also been an interesting new development here is that coordination in recruiting and training candidates. I've been talking with Megan O'Matz, journalist with ProPublica, about her newest article on the push of partisan issues in local school board races in Wisconsin. You can read her full article online at ProPublica.org. Megan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout has all the details on all the city and county meetings this week. Bridging the Gap looks at a blast from the past that is making a surprising comeback. And we get two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Pretty near every Monday on Forward Lookout, Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle look at all the city, county, and school board meetings to come in the week ahead. This week, departing elected officials, approving citywide events, and the coming construction season. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Uh, we'll start with Dane County. Its personal personnel and finance committee is already convening. Uh, they started at 5.30. All these meetings are virtual, unless we say otherwise. So, yeah, so what's the Dane County personnel and finance committee up to tonight? They had a super long agenda. Yes, they, um, they must have missed a meeting along the way or didn't have quorum or something because they have a lot of items on their agenda. Um, some of the things that might be of interest to people is um, they are approving the operating agreement between Dane County and the Dane County Housing Authority, which does provide a lot of low-income housing for people um, in Dane County. Um, a bunch of things out at the airport. Um, they're also going to be looking at um, the um, employment services agreement for their lobbyist. Um, they also have an amendment to their plans that they submit to HUD every year. Um, there's a uh, easement for a transmission line. Um, and then they are also looking at selling some land at Rotafeld Landfill. Um, and that's going to be sold to the Wisconsin Department of Transportation, as well as some land at the East District campus. Um, and then they were also going to be um, looking at the, some uh, more funding for the Sheriff's Department, which would be the purchase of a ballistic shield protection equipment. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. They need the shield Lots, lots of other things on the agenda, too. So if you're interested in, in where the money goes in Dane County, now is the time to pay attention. Well, you know why we talk about these things? Because what have we learned about just in the what the sheriff's office, the, uh, like the grappling gear, um, now this new ballistic shields. You know, this is the nitty gritty of, uh, of local government that we bring to you every week here on Forward Lookout. <laughs> Um, I, but there's another important meeting uh, happening right now, and that's the City County Homeless Issues Committee. And they're they're discussing some pretty big proposals. They are. Um, so they have the preliminary car camping report. Um, this is the one that was done by the Dane County staff. Um, they met twice. Um, and basically, <laughs> cynically, I said, this is the report that tells you why we can't have car camping in Dane County. Um, but it is some good information that will lead to some further discussion. Um, they're also going to be looking at the men's shelter resolution to buy property out on Bertillon Drive uh, for the permanent men's shelter. And then there's a group of people who have proposed a homeless bill of rights. Um, it's um, a lot of things that, you know, sort of are already in existence, but it's a great uh, way to um, very broadly describe what the rights of people who are experiencing homelessness should be. And we have an election tomorrow. That's happening. So everyone remember to, to vote if you haven't voted early already or sent in an absentee ballot. But we uh, might see they're pretty darn close to this current uh, county board's last meeting uh, that's happening on Thursday. So, yeah, what's the executive committee of the Dane County Board and uh, the, you know, the full body doing this week as lame ducks? Sure, they are um, still working on the amendments to Chapter 7, which is the board rules. I uh, may have heard a little bit about that in the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, so that's uh, been very controversial throughout the nation. <laughs> um, and then at 7 o'clock, the county board will be meeting. Um, they have, again, a lot of routine items on their agenda. They're setting some speed limits on county highways. Um, they have some of the agreements that I talked about earlier. There will be a personnel and finance. 
And probably the biggest thing that will take up the longest amount of time is um, remarks from departing supervisors. And there's quite a few of them this time. Let's move on to the city of Madison. It's kind of a busy week here uh, at the old Ford Lookout program. Uh, why don't we talk about uh, the, the Street Use Staff Commission, which is meeting virtually at 10 a.m. So this is kind of like all the events that are, are scheduled for, looks like almost through September. Yeah, there's a lot of events. Um, and also just a quick note, you know, because there is an election on Tuesday, there is no uh, city council meeting this yes, week. Yes, thanks Usually for they meet mentioning on the that. First Tuesday of the month, and they are not going to be meeting uh, this time. They'll meet in two weeks. Um, but yes, the Street Youth Staff Committee at 10 o'clock on Wednesday, the Madison Night, Mac- Night Market, Jazz on State, Made to Move, Safety Saturday, Art Fair Off the Square, Agriculture Day on Campus, and Summer in Your City 2022. I've never heard of Summer in Your City, so maybe that's a new one. Yeah, it looks like it might be. It's um, several different areas in the downtown um, area. So it's the Rotary Plaza, Lisa Link, um, North Francis Street Plaza, um, Library Mall, um, all kind of surrounding State Street. So Sure. I believe it's the confluence place. at Library Mall. Yep. <laughs> fancy, fancy word there. Okay. Uh, what should we talk about next, Brenda? What about the Board of Public Works? That's meeting on Wednesday at 430 yeah, Board of Public Works, uh, lots of, um, you know, this is the time of the year for construction. So they have lots of um, construction projects that they'll be talking about. They will also be approving the stormwater annual report to the DNR. Um, and then they are also looking at the land sale um, and agreements to develop portions of the Yahara Hills Golf Course as a future landfill. Um, and then they also are looking at bus rapid transit vehicles and um approving the roadway geometry or what it will look like for the east-west bus rapid transit project. So um, sometimes a snoozer of a committee, but there's some interesting things on there people might be interested in. No doubt, yeah. How about on Thursday, uh, we have the the Madison Public Library Board uh, is meeting. I think this one's in person at the the Ashman Library. I think that's over off a high point road, I believe. It's on my route, my paper route. (laughs) <laughs> it's on the west side that's yes all it I is know. <laughs> um, i know no it's off high point <laughs> i know it's off high point or at least near there all right so yeah um they're meeting at five o'clock and it is one of the first meetings that is a, a, a person in the city of madison so you know they've been a few uh parks committee meetings at the county but this is one of the first city meetings that's meeting in person again um they are making some amendments to the capital budget um and then they will be looking at a bunch of financial statements and um, approving some ARPA money, the um, American Rescue Plan money, to go for some um, some projects. And um, on Friday, we have the Board of Canvassers for the City of Madison and for the Madison Metropolitan School District. Um, so, you know, we hear all this stuff about election integrity, but, you know, this is um, an opportunity to, to really see how uh, what goes on and you know, to ask questions, right? So maybe you can tell us about that. That's happening at four o'clock on Friday. Sure. So the board, of, the board of canvassers are the ones that sort of tally the uh, final results. They'll be looking at any provisional ballots if somebody, you know, didn't have, you know, the right ID or something was wrong with the address on their their license or something like that. They they'll be taking a look at all of that. They'll be given a few days to be able to get that information in. They'll also be looking at, um, you know, the inspector statement from each of the polling locations and then they will um, review documentation for rejected absentee ballots 
and then they will certify the results of all of the elections. So um, not a lot going on this spring, but nope. um, they're always busy people and they always got a lot to do. Yes. And uh, anyone who's in, had interaction with the, the city clerk's office uh, is usually pretty impressed at uh, just how above board the whole operation is. Yeah, very transparent. Very, yes. very transparent. Yes. All right. Well, uh, if you want to know more about what's happening this week in local government, a good resource is forwardlookout.com. And Brenda Conkle puts that together. And really all it is is agenda and agenda items and meeting times. So you can stay informed about local governance. So if uh, that's up your alley, make sure to check it out. Brenda Conkle, thank you for taking some time and speaking with us today. You're welcome. Tomorrow marks the 12th anniversary of the Massey Upper Branch Mine Disaster in West Virginia. The disaster took the lives of 29 miners and inspired musician Steve Earle to memorialize them in his album, Ghosts of West Virginia. On today's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson tells us the story of the disaster that took the lives of those 29 miners. With music from Earle's It's About Blood. Tommy lost his firstborn son, his brother, and his nephew in an instant at Upper Big Branch. Tomorrow, April 5th, marks the Massey coal mine explosion in 2010 that killed 29 people at the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia. It was the worst U.S. mine disaster in 50 years. Most unusual was the state's conclusion that the mining company, Massey Energy, was directly responsible for the blast. At the time, Massey was the fourth largest coal company in the nation and the largest coal producer in West Virginia. The state's report also found the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA, part of the U.S. Department of Labor, failed to act decisively at the mine, even after it issued Massey over 1,300 violations in the five years prior to the explosion. The company tripled coal production in the year before the explosion, bypassing rules and racking up 500 violations. The Charleston Gazette reported that the year before the explosion, over 10% of the mine's enforcement actions were linked to major violations, willful or gross negligence compared to only 2% at comparable mines nationwide. In the month directly prior to the explosion alone, the agency issued 50 new violations. Many of the violations were for poor ventilation of dust and methane, failure to maintain proper escapeways, and allowing combustible materials to accumulate. Jeff Biggers, a journalist covering mining in the Appalachian region and the author of Reckoning at Eagle Creek, The Secret Legacy of Coal and the Heartland, said, The coal industry companies have operated in a continual state of violation and denial that we've had a century of regulated manslaughter. You know, over 104,000 Americans and immigrants have died in our American mines, and for that to happen in 2010, unnecessarily, is just wrong. A miner with almost 40 years' experience named Chuck Nelson said of his eight years at Massey, they broke laws every day to increase production. He described a common practice that destroyed the ventilation system. Removing the line curtain, which directed air current up to the working place, which diluted the methane from building up and carries it harmlessly out of the mines. These are not just violations that just happened, Nelson said. Massey managers knew how to rig things to look safe and had advanced knowledge of when inspectors were coming. 
Nelson also explained that you could be fired for complaining at Massey, which was non-union. In a union mine, you have union representation, and a union fire boss who goes in and inspects the mine. He had a lot more care about his job because it is his co-workers, it is his brothers that he's working with side by side. When the EPA allowed Massey to remove a portion of the mountain that protected his town from coal dust pollution in the air, Nelson helped start a petition and spoke at hearings. But then Massey fired and blacklisted him. After the disaster, the state of West Virginia's report concluded the upper big branch explosion was preventable and a result of total and catastrophic systemic failure by Massey Energy. The report also said Massey used the leverage of jobs it provided to attempt to control West Virginia's political system. After the explosion, CEO Blankenship was the only company leader to do time a year in prison. Then the U.S. Department of Justice dropped all other criminal charges. In fact, Blankenship received $12 million from the company in his retirement. A new company, Alpha Natural Resources, bought out Massey, but kept on key executives. After the Department of Justice dropped charges, family members were outraged. It was an act of murder, said Clay Mullins, whose brother, Rex, was killed in the explosion. They murdered 29 men, and I'm not satisfied one bit. In fact, autopsies of the miners revealed that most of them had black lung, the deadly chronic disease, even those miners with less than a decade underground. Miners continue to die, but they are also fighting back, like the over 1,000 miners that have been on strike for a year at Warrior Met coal mine in Brookwood, Alabama. Last year saw strikes in Ontario, Alabama, Chile, Colombia, Peru, and across Mexico. There have also been strikes and protests in Europe and Asia. Also last year, uranium and coal miners across Ukraine engaged in strikes and mine occupations, largely demanding back pay. But those are stories for another day. For the past is and past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen visited After Chalk Classic Arcade and interviewed the owner, Brad Van, about how he restores old game machines and opened up an arcade business. Do you recognize this sound? If so... You're probably reminiscing on the days you get a bag of quarters and spend the day playing games in an arcade. Arcades were extremely popular in the 80s through the 90s, but their popularity died down as video games and at-home consoles started to rise. However, we have seen a resurgence of arcades all over the country. Enter Aftershock Classic Arcade. Located right on East Washington Avenue here in Madison, Wisconsin, its origins date back to the year 2000 when Brad Van opened the first Wisconsin classic arcade, Aftershock Retro Games. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. As a Gen Z, the arcades weren't a place I frequented a lot as a child, and many of the popular arcade games I have only ever seen on TV. I paid a visit to Aftershock Classic Arcade and chatted with the owner, Brad. I was amazed by all the games that Brad had in his collection, and more impressed at just how polished these old machines were restored. 
Here's one you don't see too often. This is Sky Kid. It's two players at the same time, and you're flying in a little biplane, and you gotta pick up that little bomb and bomb a target at the end. It's the boss battle, basically, and you try and drop the bomb right in the center of the target, and then in the meantime, you got these little guys shooting at you the whole time. It's Rastan. This is a kind of like a Conan the Barbarian themed game. I used to play this one a lot when I was a kid. They had one up at the gas station up the house or up the street from my house. Well, this is a clown uh, animatronic clown from I think the 1950s that we found, and I was like, we got to feature that, and we got to make it look as creepy as possible. And it's in really good shape. The thing looks like it's almost brand new. After seeing all the cool games, I was curious to find out how Brad came to discover his love for old game machines. Where did he find the games? At what point did he decide to open up the arcade? I uh, started collecting games in the 90s. It was, I think I bought my first one in like 96 or 97. It was a Pac-Man machine. That was my favorite game when I was a little kid. I found it, it wasn't working. It was at a gyro shop on Williamson Street and I offered him a hundred bucks for it and they took it. So I took it home and got it working. And then I kind of was like, I want another one, you know, just for my house. I was, gee, I think I was like 20 years old at the time. My band was kind of struggling to get into the clubs because I was still really young. And that's what I wanted to do was go out and play music. But since I wasn't getting a lot of gigs, I thought, you know, I need to change gears here and do something else. So I decided to start a classic arcade. I had my first arcade was I opened it up on the year in the year 2000 on the north side of Madison. I had about 50 games at that time. And around that time, too, arcades were kind of on the down slope. The, ho the home console, people were playing that stuff more. And plus... The technology, it was just, it, like, you would put money in a game and you'd, it'd be loading. <laughs> you know, like the, you know, and, and so you'd have to sit there and wait for it to load before you start playing. And then you get to the next level and it's loading again. You're like, man, I should be just playing this at home. So I thought, yeah, I'm just going to bring back all these old games that everybody misses. You know, people like me. I'm now 46. Uh, back then, I was 24 when I opened my first arcade. And yeah, I missed a lot of these old games and just wanted to see them again. Even knowing the arcade business was not as booming as it was before, Brad believed that there was still a market for arcades to exist. I was aware that, yeah, I'm, I'm getting into a sort of a market that's in a decline, but I had a fresh approach. I supplemented it with a little uh, used video game business, so I would sell, you know, like old console games and, you know, memorabilia, stuff like that. But as it turned out, the arcade was a bigger draw. The thing about the arcade, though, is you're making a quarter of play, so it's not really a lot of money. Eventually, after running the arcade by itself for, I don't know, maybe five or six years, I decided that it was better if I just started doing locations and uh, finding a partner in the bar business or in the restaurant business where, um, you know, we could supplement the income, like the draw of the arcade machines, bringing the people in, and then, you know, serve them some drinks, serve them some food. We could make the money that way, kind of through concessions. It seems that overcoming obstacles is not something Brad shies away from. He's been able to figure out different ways to keep the business alive. But what happens when you can't have customers come into your space because of, well, a global pandemic? It was really interesting because we actually signed the lease on this place the week before everything closed down. And we were kind of at a point where it was like, okay, you know, like the landlord was cool and said, hey, do you guys want to get let out of this lease? 
And we were like, no, because this is such a great location. We want to hold on to it. And we didn't know how long it was going to take. So I was just like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fix as many of these games as I can and get ready for the time that we open. And it just gave me a chance to kind of make everything look nicer, make everything I could, I could sort of tailor which games we wanted to work on and which games we wanted to feature a little more. Plan out the layout. We did that big ceiling back there with the Pac-Man maze, you know, and we got other cool little projects that we want to do as we grow. We weren't earning any money <laughs> that whole time, uh, but that's fine. We'll we'll make it up as we go. We're already doing pretty well. As the business starts to slowly build back up, Brad is hopeful that things can turn out for the better. He's got a checklist of things to do, including more games to bring back. I guess I would like to, you know, just continue working on games. I still have a substantial amount of games in my collection that need work before we can put them out on location. You know, we've got several project games here that we're, you know, get, uh, getting finished up. We could just grow this location, like, to have more and more of these machines, or we could open a second location somewhere uh, and start stocking machines at both places. And, you know, I, I want to keep growing the environment here, like, uh, adding more installations like the Pac-Man ceiling. I'd like to, you know, have some fun with it and make the place like just really cool to hang out. You know, we'll do some merchandise, some shirts and hats. And We've been doing fundraisers. That's something that I'm really excited about uh, is uh, being able to raise some money for some great community organizations. So I'm hoping to continue that as we grow and, uh, you know, just see what we can do to be a positive force for the community and uh, just kind of become a, like a Madison staple. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen, the animated Apollo 10 and a half and Better Nate Than Ever. Let me tell you about life back then. Living in the Houston area in the late 60s, it was a great time and place to be a kid. But the world was changing and so was how we saw ourselves in it. That was a clip from the trailer for Apollo 10 and a half, a space-age childhood, a new animated movie written, directed, and produced by Richard Linklater. This is a fun, nostalgic movie, beautifully written and rendered in a fine, lush style. Linklater again uses animation layered over live performances, a technique called digital rotoscoping. The method is especially good at getting subtle gestures and facial expressions. The movie tells the tall tale of a 10-year-old boy, Stan, wonderfully voiced by Milo Coy, who in 1969 imagines himself on a secret mission to the moon. Linklater grew up in Houston in this period, Although his dad didn't work for NASA, it certainly rings true to the spirit of the time and how the NASA folks seemed to see their jobs. Even the Right Stuff film that exposed the astronauts as flawed people and all the movie since couldn't take away from the techies and the paper pushers behind the scenes doing the dull, day-to-day necessary stuff to make the astronauts' trips possible. Stan, narrated as an adult by the always wry, enjoyable Jack Black, lives an ideal life in the suburbs with his cigarette-smoking parents. It seemed most of the adults smoked back then, and his five siblings fighting over the TV and stereo. It was a different time with a different standard of safety and norms. No seatbelts, dad drank beer in the car while driving, kids were piled in the back of the pickup as the parents drove casually down the highway, etc. In fact, that dad with beer scene is played for a laugh as dad explains the difference between white trash and a redneck. You see, white trash throws his empty beer can out the window 
and Redneck throws his beer can on the floor mat. So we're Rednecks, the oldest boy inquires, to which his dad replies, Oh no, we pick up our beer cans. There are other telling scenes, like corporal punishment in school, playing dodgeball, and baseball, and fireworks. All the things that marked your childhood at a certain time and place. The controversies of the day were only lightly touched on. Vietnam, civil rights, and so on were just seen on television. Stan's oldest sister brings in short bursts of reality outside their suburban existence. This is Stan's last innocent days. Even the horrific assassination of Robert Kennedy was taken in as though it was from far away. All know, though, an exceptional, warm-hearted, enjoyable film, especially but not exclusively for male baby boomers. It just started showing on Netflix. Now for another lighthearted movie about kids. I've got some breaking news. It's an open audition. They're making Lilo and Stitch a Broadway musical. That was a clip from the trailer for Better Nate Than Ever, written and directed by Tom Federley. Federley is a former Broadway dancer who also wrote the book the movie is based on. He's also a showrunner for High School Musical, The Musical. The Nate of the title is a winning first-time actor, Ruby Wood, as a precocious middle schooler who wakes up to George Benson's On Broadway. He is dreaming of a starring role in the middle school play about Abraham Lincoln, but the tall kid gets that role. Enter his best and perhaps only friend, Libby Aria Brooks, who seems just as Broadway-oriented as Nate. She tells him there's an open Broadway audition for a Lilo and Stitch musical. Did I mention this is on Disney Plus? Anyway, too conveniently, Nate's parents, real-life Broadway stars and real-life couple, Michelle Federer and Norbert Leo Butts go away for a special anniversary weekend, and his brother Anthony, a convincing Joshua Bassett, is off for an out-of-town basketball tournament. Nate says he'll stay over with his friend Libby. So with his parents off, he and Libby sneak off on an overnight bus trip from Pittsburgh to New York. Libby's cover is that she is staying at Nate's. They load up their cell phones to provide cover for them. Nate's shows him feeding and petting his dog. Once on the bus, our real adventure begins. Nate and Libby make a winning pair of friends and form their own mutual admiration society. They make it to the audition after some difficulties and then plausibly run to Nate's aunt, the enjoyable Lisa Kudrow. His aunt is estranged from her sister but does the right thing and calls Nate's mom. But Nate gives her Lily's number, which delays the inevitable long enough for Nate to be able to sneak in and get an audition. You can probably guess where it goes from there, and you'd be right. But all in all, a fun family movie worth checking out. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. A big welcome to our newest reporter, Mackenzie Shanahan. Welcome, Mackenzie. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show, Nate Weggiehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>